But yeah, if you would join me then in Acts chapter 6, we're going to uh, gain some perspective, I hope, uh, at this kind of transition point in the book. Uh, we're getting ready to move into a little bit different theming next week as we continue through Acts. Uh, but we're really at a good point to look backwards as we begin to look forward. And so the title for today's sermon is Don't Lose Sight. Don't Lose Sight. We are in Acts chapters 6, verses 1 through 7. What's interesting is we, we encounter this point, and we have already touched on one uh, kind of summary verse, and there's going to be another one coming very shortly. We have this opportunity here to look back at what has already happened in this whirlwind journey of the new church in Acts. We've seen that Jesus ascended on to high, and that the Holy Spirit then came at Pentecost. And we see then this budding church begin to thrive in its early days, but it doesn't come easy, right? It is the power of the Holy Spirit that moves the apostles forward with the Word of God, and people respond. But it is the powers of men that combat that. As we see very quickly, they encounter resistance, and not necessarily for what they're doing. They've not yet had an issue with anything that they're actually accomplishing. It's what they're saying. You see, the apostles go forward in the name, right? We saw last week that they strictly charged them not to speak in this name anymore. And so it's become evident, even already, among, of course, the apostles in the early church, but also to the government in the area, that this is more than just something that people are doing, but it's something that they represent. It's something that they stand behind, And if anything is pertinent for us today when we're thinking about not losing sight, is that we need to understand as a church that we should look the same. It's not just about what we do, but it's about what we represent. About the name that we do our activities in, the way that we live our life in, it is in the name of Jesus the Christ. See, it's really easy for It'd be really easy for the apostles, particularly as we're going to see in this passage. It'd be really easy for us today to only be concerned about activity and not to be concerned about the name that we stand in, that we represent. So I want us to encourage us to not lose sight. So the church is growing. We've seen what's happening already. We see even in verse 1 that they're increasing in number. And something that we're going to be reminded of again And we've already seen already in chapter 5 at the beginning with Ananias and Sapphira is that, as John Piper says, not all growth is pure growth. Not all growth that happens is pure growth. In verse 1 it says, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, they are growing. But we've already seen in chapter 5, and we're going to continue to see, that not all growth is pure growth. In fact, we remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 13, verses 47 through 50. He says again, The kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. And when it was full, men drew it ashore, and they sat down, and then they sorted the good into containers, but they threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so in growth, it's not all going to be pure growth. We should expect mess within a catch. 
Just as Jesus talks about in Matthew 13, we should expect a mess within the catch. And then we can trust that the Lord will, sh- will sort the true fish or the true believers from the false fish or the false believers, the sheep from the goats. So this kind of growth is, is good, but we need to remember that it's not all pure growth. Just because we see flourishing in some instances does not mean that it's good flourishing. Right? Again, it's not just what happens, but it's what the name is, the representation. Now, so we've got that on one hand. They're increasing, but at the same time, the church was failing. So while they were growing, they were failing, at least in a certain sense. They were failing James one twenty seven, Of course, not yet written, but it's going to be pointing towards the importance of caring for widows and orphans, right? And so as we encounter in this passage, we'll read in a moment, they're failing to care for the widows in a certain sense. They're dropping the ball. So they are increasing, they are growing, but at the same time, they're, they're failing. It's helpful for, for a pastor, a leader of a church, to encounter this passage and recognize that the apostles, these are the guys, they were failing, right? That's encouraging if we happen to be failing in any way. We're not alone, we're not the first one. Even good churches fail at some things, at least temporarily. When you think back to Revelation, the seven churches, the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation chapter 1 and 2. And in there you see that there are some churches that are doing well, there are some churches that are not doing well, and there are some churches that are intermediate, right? And these churches have an opportunity, that's the point of the letters, to, to overcome whatever failings they have. There's an opportunity for growth before final judgment happens. And the same is true for our church today. Wherever we might be failing, we have to address that so that on the day, we can stand in a more pure sense as we're presented to our bride. So even the, <laughs> the early church fails in some respects, at least temporarily. They address those issues. And so the question then is, is the Church of Acts a good church? Well, I mean, you've got these men that are leading from literal conversations with Jesus, right? Like Jesus told them what to do, and then they went and did it, um, in a very more literal sense than we do in prayer, right? That you've got Peter, who was so in tune with the Holy Spirit that his shadow heals people, right? And they're so Bible-centered in this early church in Acts uh, that they're preaching from the Bible that many of them will actually write themselves, right? So no one's going to accuse these guys of not being Bible-centered, right? This is a good church. The Church of Acts is a good church. But they're failing, right? Failure does not always equal sin. As we're going to encounter today, sometimes failure is simply a result of human limitations. Human limitations. We are made in the image of God, but we are not made God. We share many of his attributes, but there are some that do not communicate back to us. And we certainly don't represent all of those attributes in their fullest extent. So we have limits. We have limits. And so what I want us to do as we look today at what's going on in this passage is to keep in mind this, this kind of, first of all, context that we're in, Right? We have a plot, we have characters, but it's not a story without a setting, right? Recognize where they're at, their context, what's going on in this book. It's going to be really easy for us in these historical narratives to forget what's happened before. 
And when we're in the epistles, we just get commands and commands and commands and theology and theology and commands and theology, and it builds on itself that way. But here we have this story that we're following, and we need to make sure that we keep our grounding in that. So on one hand, you have a church that's increasing. Not all of the growth is good, but it's increasing, it's growing, and you have a church that's failing. Not all failures are sin, some of it's just human limitations. And so we need to face both of these realities with grace. We need to face both of these realities with grace and don't lose sight. Don't lose sight. Don't lose sight of what? Of where we're going, of what God's called us to do, of who we are, our identity, of what's to come, of the day that we look forward to. We cannot lose sight. But what happens in this passage is an absolute perfect storm for the early church to lose sight of what God is getting ready to do with them and to become inward-focused and to absolutely lose all vision beyond themselves. And so at this checkpoint in Acts, we want to make sure that we lift our eyes and don't lose sight. Let's look at our passage, chapter 6, 1 through 7. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve, that is the apostles, summoned the full numbers of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Pumbaa, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. We watched that last night. It was fun. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the opportunity to dig into here and look at what you have for us today. Father, as we look at really our birth story, um, and Father, as we come up in just a couple of weeks on our eighth anniversary as a local body, um, we want to take the opportunity to, to do a, a checkup, to see what you have designed for the church when they encounter very real issues uh, and very real limitations. And Father, how you and your Spirit uh, provide the power for us to be faithful to your Word, and Father, to your goal for the church. And so Father, please help us not to lose sight as we look forward uh, to the coming years together as a local body. And Father, as we look back even uh, to what you've already done before, knowing that you certainly can do these things again. And Father, please uh, break our hearts today for the church before and break our heart for the church today. That we would be faithful in what you've called us to. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. And so my question for you today with these seven verses, as you look at that, as you hear that, what problems can you identify? What, what is the problems that are presented here? In much of my pastoral ministry, in much of my time um, just in churches and house gatherings and discussing things with people, I often find, and this happens to me as well, that we, 
we don't identify the real problem in life and issues and relationships and challenges and struggles, we don't actually identify the right problem. And so then we come up with solutions to a perceived issue that don't actually fix anything. And then, even if those things are aimed at the right problem, they're not coming first from Scripture, and so they're practical and they're short-lived. And one of the hardest things to do when we think about life, when we encounter relationships, when we talk about the way that we work together, side by side, uh, in front and behind, however it may be, we have to make sure that we're identifying problems rightly. And so it's not uncommon when we encounter this, uh, this passage for people to say, the problem is that the widows weren't getting fed. Yes, that is a true statement, and that is a problem. Do you see any other ones? Well, there's an implied problem in that uh, I guess they're expecting the apostles to be the ones to take care of it. That's true. But what other problems do you see? Because I can see at least seven. <laughs> I see at least seven problems in this passage. You see, in some regards today, you're going you're to gain some insight, I hope, uh, into the shoes of, of your elders. As we look at uh, the church, our church, as we look at the relationships around us and the things that God has called us to do in leading, um, there's manifold problems all over the place. And part of the challenge, again, is identifying the right ones. Um, and then, as we're going to see in a minute, making sure that we order them in the right priority. So what are some problems that we have here? Well, first of all, and some people have seen this, we talked about this a little bit and some house gathering stuff this past week, is they have to protect unity, right? The apostles have to protect unity. And that one is kind of a overarching one that you can see, but maybe not just bubbles to the surface right away. They have to protect unity. And, and part of the challenge here is that it's amid cultural tensions. It's amid very practical cultural tensions. There's no, uh, no accident that Luke includes specific cultural names for these uh, individuals. You have the Hellenists. The complaint arose by the Hellenists against who? The Hebrews. Now, we could talk about this some other time. Simply what's happening here is that you have Greek-speaking Jews that have been exiled back in the Old Testament, right? And even then afterwards. And they come back and they've spent so much time there that they have adapted much of the culture and, of course, the language of the Greek commerce community. But they come back to Jerusalem, and you have these Hebrew widows and others that then are still Hebrew-speaking, right? And what happens when you have culture clashes like that? You have Greek-speaking Greek Jews that are second class to the purists, right? The Hebrew Jews who are pure. In fact, the book of Romans is essentially written to that very situation. Where you have these Greek speakers, or the flip of that, I'm sorry, the flip of that situation where you have these people that have been there and the Jews actually come back in and they don't care for them well. And so you have this challenge, this cultural challenge that is very real and must be dealt with. It can't be ignored. And one of the easiest things to try to do with cultural issues is just to ignore them. You can read whatever you want to into what I'm saying for today's present, but what I'm trying to say for us is that we can't ignore. We have to engage because it's a very real thing. How we engage is the challenge. How we engage is the challenge because they have to protect unity. Now, their first concern is protecting unity within the church, right? But they're going to protect unity 
with the truth, not with whatever keeps everyone glued together. And that's the challenge in the church today, is that everyone wants to glue the church together with whatever will stick rather than with the word which may challenge. Another problem that you see is keeping up with legitimate needs. The fact that the widows are not being cared for is a legitimate need. Now, what's not good about it is the complaint, right? A complaint by the Hellenists arose. And not just a complaint, but a complaint against someone. So there, the thing that we need to recognize here is that there are legitimate needs. And there are also legitimate responses. Just because we have a legitimate need, to put it into context for you, just because you have a legitimate offense, someone has legitimately offended you, does not mean that we can respond however we want. And just because the Hellenist widows are without does not mean that we can just respond however they want. They can't just complain, and they certainly shouldn't complain against another party. That's another problem that they're trying to deal with here. A third one, overcoming overburdened leadership. You have these apostles who are trying to manage the local church. You have these apostles who are trying to lead out well, and they encounter the problem. It's not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. This isn't, this isn't the way it should be. Now, they don't have a model to look back to yet, but in some senses they do. If you have your Bibles, go with me way back to Exodus, right before Sinai, in chapter 18. Exodus 18, starting in verse 17, you have Jethro, the priest of Midian. This is Moses' father-in-law. All right. Verse 17, Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. Now, obey my voice. I will give you advice, and and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure. And all this people will also go to their place in peace. And so Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. So, you have this danger of overburdened leadership. What you're doing is not good. It will not last. You will burn out, and, and, and you'll burn the people out too. Because they need things to happen. And if you can't provide it all, then they're going to get burnt out along with it. So put people in place. So they have to overcome overburdened leadership. A fourth problem I see is the avoiding and handling of criticism. Right? Right? Avoiding and handling of criticism. 
you have a group of people who are, are not happy, and they're not just like angry, they're, as you would say, hangry, right? They're not getting their food. If you've ever been around a hangry person, you know what this is like. It's a like escalation of danger times 10, right? So you have a bunch of hangry people and hangry older folks, right? Um, widows in most cases. So that's a volatile situation, right? And what do you have? You have 12 young guys of whom have no education, right? They were fishermen. Everyone was astounded by them, right? As we saw earlier, but they have no education. And so what do you think is the natural response that's going to come? Complaint. A complaint rose, right? And so you're handling criticism in a certain sense. And they obviously have something that they're concerned about. Otherwise, they would just say, all right, well, we'll try harder. We'll make sure that, you know, we boot up Microsoft Excel this week and actually handle the issue correctly this week, right? Let's just try harder. But that, that can't be the solution, and they know that. So there has to be something else. They have to avoid undue criticism, and they have to handle due criticism, right? And so what do they do? All right, brothers, verse 3, pick out from among you seven men, right? You pick the men, right? You pick the men whom we will appoint to this duty. Now you see this handling and leadership, right, of involving the people in the decision, but the buck stops with the apostles, right? You guys, you guys raise up these people. We will appoint them, right? It falls on the elders' hands, the apostles' hands, to appoint these people to this duty. But you guys can pick out from among them, right? And look at verse 5. What they said pleased the whole gathering, right? That's handling of criticism. That's wisdom. That's wisdom in action of how to help lead people. Well, this is a common exercise uh, in, in many eldership books as you are looking through these things. That this is a way to involve the congregation in working together, right? You guys, let's help meet that need together. It's, it's not our job. Our job is verse 4. We will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And that's the fifth problem, keeping ministerial priorities in order. Keeping ministerial orders or priorities in order. You see, it'd be easy to go after criticism. Leaders in any color, whether they're in the church or in business, attract criticism. I mean, can you imagine the, the, the old lady, right, who, who's used to getting her distribution from an apostle, right? And Nicanor shows up, right, with a, bag, with a brown bag of groceries and celery sticking out of the top. And he goes, hi, Ruth, here's, here's, your, here's your distribution for this week. Just wanted to take care of you. Goes, Who are you? You're not Peter. I need a shadow. I'm not feeling well. Nicanor? Who's that, right? It's criticism. He's like, this brought you bread. What's <laughs> Whatever. See you next week, Ruth, right? I mean, that's what we're dealing with here. This is criticism that happens on the ground when you put boots there, right? What's Peter doing? Not taking care of Ruth, right? Well, he's going to take care of Ruth in the best way he knows how. You have to make sure that you keep ministerial priorities in order. That's the challenge when you're dealing with relationships. See, on paper, things are easy. This makes sense, and so let's make it happen. But when you encounter people with real needs, Ruth needs her bread. We have to take care of them. And so it's hard to keep priorities in order. Number six is sharing the ministry. 
Sharing the ministry is a challenge. And, and we already talked about overburdened leadership. What you are doing is not wise. And then you saw that Jethro's advice was to share the burden. Share the burden. Share the ministry. And so what did they do? They chose the whole gathering, Stephen and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas. They set them before the apostles and they prayed and they laid hands on them. And what happened? The word of God continued to increase, right? So sharing the ministry is, is a challenge that they have to overcome. And, and what happens if they don't seek them out? There's no sharing and it remains on the apostles. So that's a problem that has to be addressed. And the last one, number seven, advancing the mission while managing people. And this is a thing that typically gets missed, even in this passage to a degree, because it's not explicit. But what do they say that they're supposed to do? We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what we see later in the epistles from Timothy, and I'm sorry, from Paul to Timothy, and from Peter, is that they are to manage the household of God, right? And so the apostles, elders in our case, have a responsibility to manage the people of God. In the same way that Moses was to manage the nation of Israel as in their exodus, uh, we have the same thing in the New Testament where the elders are to manage the household of God. One of the uh, qualifications for an elder is that they manage their own household well so that they can manage the church of God well. And so managing becomes a kind of backdoor thing that we, we miss often when we think about uh, leaders. When we think about leading people, when we think about the position or the office of elders, is that managing is a very real task. Uh, Matt and I joke about it, but we, he tries to have an admin day. It's stuff that's got to get done. It's managing the church. It's, it's stuff that has to happen in Excel. It's stuff that has to happen in Word as we make documents to help govern the church and what we do in our ministries. Of writing material so that our leaders, as we share the burden, can happen. So this is a very real issue because we have to advance the mission, press everyone, but also manage Manage, manage. And it's easy to default on managing and just care for people if that's what you're gifted at. Or it's easy to default on caring for people and just manage if that's what you're gifted at. And so it's a challenge. This is a, uh, a challenge to overcome. And so we have seven issues here in this passage. And what do we do with them? What do we do with them? Because it seems in one case that the solution presents more problems. It's more to manage, right? It's more complaints. Ruth's giving you a hard time. All right, I'll go and I'll take care of her. I can make fun of Ruth because Ruth was my grandma. So um, that's why I'm not choosing another name like Susan. I don't want to pick on Susan's. Um, and Ruth is in the Bible. Uh, Ruth wants Peter. All right, just send Peter there. All right, she won't complain anymore. She'll get her food. All the things will be accomplished. We're good. But if we raise up a leader and we put him in position, now we have to make sure that it actually went. We have to make sure that he's actually turning in his receipts. We have to make sure that he's actually caring for her while she, he's there and praying for her. Right? We have to do all this other managing. So in some senses, solutions create more problems. Right? And so there's a lot going on here. It's more than just they're not getting their food. Let's make someone else do it. Good? All right, let's continue through Acts. You see, the way that the church handles issues here is, is in certain senses, prescriptive for us. But we have to make sure that we're addressing all of the right problems and that we have a correct answer a correct solution so what is the solution to these problems it sounds simple it is to a degree 
but it's a little bit more developed than we typically, I think, uh, default to looking at it. The main solution is simply this. The church must remain word-centered. The church must remain word-centered. Now, on paper, that sounds fantastic. It belongs on every single website. It belongs on the front of every leadership book. And it should be the solution to every single problem that we have. Right? How do you do that? How do you do that? You take someone out of the congregation, you're an elder. Help the church remain word-centered. How do you do that? It seems relatively easy, even for our congregation, as we really stress this. But we're, we're not without lacking. And we'll get to that in a moment. You see, the Word is what grounds us. The Word is what grounds us in leadership and relationships and actually living out our sanctification as we become more like Christ. And, and the apostles recognized right smack dab in the middle of this issue that without the Word, there is no church. Without the Word, there is no church. There are churches out there without the Word that are not churches. They recognize that. And on the other hand, there are ministries out there that are not churches because they don't have the Word. And so while the church should support soup kitchens and clothing shelters and every other ministry to the poor and to the orphans and to the widows, we have the Word. We have a monopoly on that. The church has the Word of God. And literally, when they say it's not right that we should give up, right? They're actually, uh, a, a better translation would probably be, it is not pleasing to God. It is not pleasing to God for us to give up these things in order to serve tables. It's not right. God is holy, which means He's a moral God. So if it's not right, then it's not moral, and so it would not be pleasing to God if we were to do these things. So, being word-centered is what grounds us. When you think about the way that the apostles responded, how did they respond? Where did their answer come from? It came from conviction, and that's what we've seen all the way through Acts already. It came from conviction. They recognize that the word is what keeps us grounded, and so they respond from that position. We have to, we have to, we have to, have to handle the word. It would not be pleasing to God if we did something else. So, our solution has to come with that in mind, right? But what else does it mean? It also means prayer, right? And that's, I think, how we typically treat prayer, too. Also prayer, right? The word, word-centered, also prayer, right? And that's how we, I think, encounter it in the church. Prayer, prayer is important. We'll do it at the end. We'll do it when the people on stage are moving around, right? We'll do it when the pastor gets up. I will pray before meals. Um, also prayer, right? Prayer is just like tagline to our life often. The challenge with prayer is that prayer is the abiding in God. To be truly word-centered means to be abiding. It means to be abiding in the scriptures. And if we're abiding in the scriptures, then we're abiding in prayer. It's a communication, Right? As we receive the word, we communicate back. You think about renovation churches' identities. We're learners of the word, right? 
We're worshipers. We get that from the Word. We're family. We're grounded in the Word. Our, uni- our uniting as a family happens because of the Word, Jesus, right? We are missionaries in that we take the Word out. We are servants in that we look like Christ as we serve others. We're going to talk about that specifically in just a moment. We're grounded in the Word and our identities, but when we think about our rhythms like communicate, what does communicate talk about in our rhythms? Hopefully our service leaders are like, I know, because I do rhythms in our house gatherings. Right? Communicate is a, is a two-way conversation. We receive the Word, and we communicate back to God in prayer. Communicating, praying, is a regular rhythm believers should be in. It should not be a tag-on, and we so often make it a tag-on. When you think about the questions that this word-centeredness raises for us, I think it's pretty manifold. I mean, if you think about these questions, is the word the blueprint for your life? As you think about the next five years, if you think about the next ten years, is the word the blueprint for your life? It informs the way that you think through relationships. It informs the way that you think through career. It informs the way that you think through family and kids. It informs the way that you think about education. It informs the way that you think about friendship. It informs the way that you think about recreation. The Word is the blueprint for our life. Would others around you describe you as a man or a woman of the Word? Can they hear it when it comes off of your lips? Do you respond from that place? Think about it this way. When you hear a problem or you you hear a question from someone, do you run through the scriptures in your mind for an answer? Or do you just say what seems to make sense? For me specifically, I'm in college and I hear that question, I'm like, I don't know. I'm pretty good at strategy, so I'm probably just going to say what makes sense. I was convicted that I didn't know how to speak into situations. And so from then on in my Bible reading, I specifically tried to take note of how Scripture speaks to different situations. And that has served me so well when I think about counseling. It served me well in my own heart when I think blueprint, because then I think about all right, relationship, relationship with my wife. And I can think of at least five passages that speak to how I am to work into that relationship. And that helps me just from my thinking, right, as I'm driving as I'm walking, as I'm sitting in a chair, as I'm watching a football game, it's not a football game. And I can think about Scripture without having to go to it. Now, I'm not saying I have remotely close to anywhere of the Bible memorized, but it is setting the blueprint for my life. I can drop into that when I'm thinking through issues, and then I can go to the Word and investigate further. But I respond at least from those five verses most of the time when I'm in the Spirit. So when you answer questions, when someone has a problem, when they're thinking about some kind of scenario, do you have Scripture to deliver? It's out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. If it's not in your heart, then it will not come out. If you think about prayer, do you covet the prayers of your elders? And do you spur us on in prayer? One of the greatest things you can do for Matt, Greg, and I is to say, hey, how's your prayer been this week? That's convicting to me, all right? Now, I know you're going to start doing it, and you're going to think it's funny, but it's not funny, all right? 
That's a big deal. That's something that we're supposed to be about. It's one of the two major things that we do. We know that Scripture says the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Do you fight for integrity? Like we talked about last week or the week before. Do you fight hard for integrity so that your prayers are heard? Are you concerned about the integrity of your pastor so that our prayers are heard? I think the biggest challenge with prayer, I know I'm stepping on toes, mine are crushed. Is prayer a last resort or is it an abiding, ongoing conversation? I don't mean with your eyes closed. We've talked about this before. One of the biggest themes in our, in our house gathering since we've started Acts has been this sense of abiding. It keeps coming up. It keeps coming up. Abiding. Abiding in the Word, abiding in prayer. It's a place that we are in. We are grafted into the vine of Christ and we abide in Him. We stay there. We are rooted, and that is where our nutrients come from. That is where our supply comes from. And then out of that comes fruit. Abiding in the vine. Is it an ongoing conversation? So the church must remain word-centered. And so how does being word-centered actually solve this, right? I just described a good scenario for you. People that are in the word, know the word, live the word, and communicate the word, right? That's, that's great. But how does it solve these seven issues? Well, we have to take a, a deeper step. You ready? So put on your mining hat and let, let's explore a little bit farther. Word-centered people are Jesus-centered people. How often when you hear the idea of word-centered, do you think Jesus-centered? Are, those, are they synonymous with you? Because I don't think that they are for most people. And I, I, I say that for me too. Oftentimes, particularly with my spiritual gifting and teaching, I'm all about information, I'm about knowing the book, and I want to Im- implement the book, right? And I, Word-centered people are Jesus-centered people. Duh, right? I mean, it, it seems like it, we forget that all the time. Let's think about our typical MO, then our desire, particularly as elders, I, I would say, and then our hope, all of us together. Our typical MO when we think word-centered people is like I was describing we need to know it. You need to know it so that when you encounter a situation, you've got five verses and you can drop into your blueprint and you can live life rightly, right? Our typical MO is to say, well, that doesn't feel right, which is good and, and great. That is the Spirit of God convicting you and saying, hold your horses. Let's see what Scripture has to say about this, right? That's good. I totally affirm that. It'd be good if you already had some, right? And that's why you were convicted. Um, but go investigate. Awesome. Do we think Jesus-centered, though, in that? I had a leader uh, in my life, a mentor in my life before, who I, I do not respect him for his theological prowess. Um, I, I think he's off base on many things there. But one of the most, um, I, I still admire him for this, to this day. I, and I don't know anyone else who has, has done this as well as he has, despite his theological struggles, um, I would say. He knew the Gospels really well. He knew the Gospels really well. I don't know if he knows who Paul is, um, but he knows who Jesus is. And his, I, I still hear it today. I don't see Jesus doing that, is what he would say to people. Or I, I, he would say, I see Jesus doing this. And he spoke from the Gospels all the time. All the time. That's, 
that's knowing Jesus. That's our desire for you. That's our desire for us. One of the big reasons we made the shift in house gatherings this year into doing the, the scripture ahead, the week ahead, and not doing as much reflection, is that we would learn to own our Bibles more. That we would learn to own our Bibles more. And from preschool on, we're getting ready to give you guys all tote bags so that you can help bring your kids, first of all, all their stuff home because we're, we're loading you up with paperwork, uh, but so that they can bring their Bibles to church. We, we want you to own your Bible. We want you to see Jesus in the Bible. That's why we're big on biblical theology and we talk about seeing Jesus throughout the Scriptures. But Word-centered people are Jesus-centered people because the Word became flesh. That's the link for today. The Word became flesh. Period, right? No, no, no. He became flesh and He dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. Now Christmas is coming. Don't miss this incarnation theme here. To be a Word-centered person is to be a Jesus-centered person because Jesus is the Word made flesh. And so our hope is that you will see and you will savor Jesus. For Word-centered people to be Jesus-centered people. Now, now you've got all these problems and you have people that know the Word they know the Word, and they know Him, the Word. That changes things. That changes things. Now we've moved beyond a system to a person. Now we've moved beyond a, a religion of ideas, like we see in the Pharisees, like we see in the Roman Catholic Church, like we see in many Reformed churches. we move from a system to a person. Why does that make such a big difference? Because if you see and savor Jesus, then it will lead to something. If you see Jesus, then it will lead to something. Because Jesus-centered people are life-giving servants. Jesus-centered people are life-giving servants. I mean this in two respects. They're life-giving servants. They're life-giving servants in that they provide life. They provide health to an organization, to a group of people. As John Piper talks about, the church is both an organization and an organism. It is a growing and developing thing. And so it takes time to assess and rightly approach and fix problems and continue to uh, develop strengths. And that's something that we do every year in our retreat uh, in a large scale, but we do weekly as we assess the organism and help the organization develop. And so it's life-giving in a sense that we are developing health. And people who are Jesus-centered become life-giving. They give that which they've received. See, Jesus has come in the flesh. He's dwelt among us, and he has a relationship with me. Now I'm a changed person. 
Before, I just respected a religious principle, a religious philosophy, a religious structure, some kind of framework that when I followed, made my life better. But when I trust Jesus, when he comes on the scene, and I've spent time walking with him, I've spent time being rebuked by him, I've spent time being encouraged by him, I've spent time failing him, I've spent time being forgiven by him, that changes a person into being life-giving. Of course, I mean the other way, too. You give your life up for someone. You see, Jesus embodied both of these. You have John one twenty nine. You have John the Baptist sees Jesus coming while he's in the river. He says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This Jesus is the Lamb of God, and He takes away the sin of the world. That's life-giving. And He'll lay down His life as well, too. You see, Jesus, who came not to be served, but to serve. You see, Jesus, who came around these very apostles, right? These guys who are being criticized, these guys who are trying to lead this church, are hearing the complaint from the Hellenists and being like, "Blind guys, really? You don't understand the nature of servants? And in their head, if it's a TV show, right, they're flashing back, and, and what happens? They're sitting around a table, and Jesus comes, and he takes off his shirt, and he pulls on a towel, and he's washing my feet. And we can't figure this issue out. There are so many bigger things at stake. This Jesus who, who served, not the healthy, but the sick. This Jesus who became flesh. God put on flesh, pouring himself out. God who humbled himself to service even on the cross. Go to Philippians 2. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God and not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. A Jesus-centered person is a life-giving servant. He gives life in the way that he cares for people. He gives life in the way that he treats people. He gives life in that when he serves, he gets nothing 
back. If in your service you get something back, you're not serving, you're manipulating. Service is life-giving. Life-emptying. Spending yourself for the good of others. And so how does that solve this problem in Acts? You see, the apostles who keep the church word-centered develop people who are Jesus-centered. And Jesus-centered people give up their life for the sake of others. That solves problems. In fact, it may prevent more problems than it (laughs) even needs to solve. Part of managing a church, part of dealing with issues is keeping priorities in order, recognizing what needs to happen. And a big part of that, as we, as Jesus-knowing people, can give life to others by being about the mission. If we're about ourselves, if we turn inwards to very legitimate needs, very legitimate, totally understandable, they were not being taken care of. God commands them to be taken care of, right? But what happens is the eyes start coming in. They start coming in, and they lose sight. They lose sight of what's to come. They lose sight of what God has called them to. They lose sight of who they are. They lose sight of their identity as their identity becomes wrapped up in how they were mistreated, legitimately mistreated. But what does Jesus do to a person who encounters him? Nothing stays the same. People that were legitimately harmed have new life. People that were fatherless have a father. People that were brotherless have a brother who will never leave them. People that were hurt have been restored. People that were dead come to life. Jesus changes people. And it's so easy for us to get wrapped up into ourselves and our own issues and problems that, hear me, are legitimate I'm not saying that you don't have the right to feel the way you feel. I have those. What I'm saying is that Jesus changes that. If you know Jesus, it will change. For different people, it's a different process. It's different length. But hear me. People that know Jesus are life-giving. It will cost you something. And that's hard news to hear to people that have already been burned. They feel like they've already paid a price. (laughs) I feel like I've already paid a price. So don't tell me it's going to cost me more to get better. That's the wrong perspective. And I, I struggle in and out of that myself. When I encounter Jesus in the Scriptures, it doesn't cost me anything. He paid it all. And when I view it as if I have to give something over, I'm missing the point. Jesus paid it all. And so for a person who's encountered Jesus, he becomes a life-giving servant. And here is your solution. Seven Greek men. Right? These are Greek names. These are Greek Jews. Right? Greek-speaking Jews. Solve the issue 
And you have this man named Stephen, full of grace and power. He was doing great wonders and signs among the people. This is a deacon doing amazing things. He's giving life to others, doing great wonders and signs among the people. And in very short order, we're going to find that it takes the other part as well. He has to give his life. So church, don't lose sight. Don't lose sight. When we encounter problems, give grace. Give grace. Look ahead to what's to come. Look ahead to what God is calling us to as people and as a church. Don't lose sight of what's going to happen. Great persecution is getting ready to come down on this, this very infant church. Don't lose sight. Be life-giving when you serve. This is one of the greatest challenges that we'll encounter. And the challenge is to recognize that it doesn't have to come from us. Yes, we lay down our life only to pick it up again. Because Jesus paid all. And he's going to give us new life. So don't lose sight. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much for your son. Father, in times where I feel as if I'm spent, I'm overburdened in leadership, I don't have the answers that I, I need to have, I encounter criticism that I want to avoid or, or that I need to engage. Father, we just get restless and we get, we get wrapped up in ourselves and we just get into tighter and tighter bundles. And we lose sight of everything that's important. All while feeling validated in some sense, because it's a legitimate issue. Father, help us see that the kingdom is so much bigger than us. The kingdom is so much bigger than, than us. Even these legitimate needs that we, or legitimate wrongs that we have now, will not even be a thought in our mind 30 million years from now. Every anxiety we have over a conversation, every hurt that we bear right now, every scar that we may have that goes deep, Father, we will forget every bit of that when we see your face. But Father, let us not waste the time that we have now. Bring us together in a unity that's willing to lay down our lives. Help us not lose sight of what you've called us to. Father, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.